Hi, it's Ken White. And it's Josh Barrow, and this is Serious Trouble. Uh, so, Ken, since we spoke last week, we've gotten a verdict in the Carol v. Trump trial, and uh, Donald Trump has been found liable for most of the things that he was accused of in that case. Yeah, it's uh, quite a big win for Eugene Carroll, whom most people thought could never prevail on proving something that happened so long ago. But uh, I think she chose the right moment to pursue this claim. The jury found quite quickly that Trump was liable for sexual assault, but not rape. So the, the way the charge worked, it was a New York State battery claim, and battery can be forcible touching, sexual assault, or rape, kind of escalating levels of seriousness. Jury found that she proved that she was sexually assaulted, but not raped. And they awarded her $2 million in compensatory damages on that, 20000 punitive, and then also found in her favor on the defamation claim that he had said things about her dismissing her story that were defamatory and awarded her a total of uh, 2.7 more in damages and 280,000 in punitives. Is it strange to you that the jury found uh, for Carol on every aspect of this except the rape aspect? I mean, for the jury, this was a question of who do you believe? Do you believe E. Jean Carroll's story about what happened at Bergdorf Goodman in the 1990s and that they believed all aspects of it except for rape, which under New York law implies that Donald Trump inserted his, his penis into her? Is, is it odd that, the, that they sort of picked and chose in that way when there wasn't even a counter story presented by Donald Trump? It's odd in the abstract, not so much in the context of how juries do things. So juries, you know, focus on weird things. They, in effect, compromise in weird ways. So they just may have thought that her testimony on what precisely Trump physically did wasn't perfectly clear and decided, well, it's at least sexual assault, so we'll just decide it was sexual assault, not sure that it was rape. It, it does seem odd in the abstract, but it, that's the way juries often think. They make the big picture decision about where they're going, and then they kind of fool around on the um, margins about little details. They just may have thought her rather explicit testimony on, on the, about the rape somehow wasn't completely convincing about exactly how it happened. Andy McCarthy at National Review had, had an interesting theory, which was that there was this so-called propensity evidence admitted in this case, which is to say the Access Hollywood tape where Donald Trump describes that uh, the, the manner in which he, tr he treats women. And you had testimony from two other witnesses who said that they were sexually abused in one way or another by Donald Trump. And that all of that testimony went to sexual abuse and it did not specifically go to rape. And that therefore, it was that all of the aspects except the rape aspect of Eugene Carroll's story was augmented by that propensity evidence, and may maybe they felt the need to rely on that evidence, and that that's what got them to this result. That could certainly be. I'm not convinced that juries parse that carefully. So uh, they could have decided, yes, we believe 51% that he sexually assaulted her, but not raped her. Um, again, juries are weird. You know, if you ever watch a, a mock jury uh, come to a conclusion or talk to a jury after they've come to a conclusion, you're often left kind of scratching your head. Um, <laughs> and that's because I think in part that people like us who do deep dives into cases and know all the details and been thinking about it for a long time in a much broader context, interpret things very differently than people who have been shown bits and pieces of it in a very controlled context in a courtroom. Uh, it just lands differently. 
So uh, it's hard to put ourselves in the shoes of someone who didn't really follow the case closely, except what was handed to them in a courtroom. Is $5 million a surprising amount to you for the damage award? No, it's something that is a lot of money and a big statement, but not completely over the top. It doesn't, frankly, uh, do much to Trump financially, I think, although it certainly does in terms of his credibility. And, uh, you know, it's a it's a very substantial amount of money without being so substantial that it calls the, the fairness of the jury into question. One of the things we talked about last week was Donald Trump not only didn't testify at this trial, he didn't appear in person at the trial. And there was this thing in the last minute where he says to some reporter, literally on a, on a golf course in Ireland, and he tells reporters, well, I'm, I'm going to go back to the trial and I'm going to, uh, what was the? Confront. Yeah. He says, I'm going to go back to the trial. I'm going to confront Eugene Carroll. And the judge sees news reports of this and basically says, if Trump wants to appear. Uh, he has until Sunday evening to give me a motion uh, asking to do that. And I'm not saying that I'm going to approve it, but you know, the, he's he's waived his his right to appear. I want to make sure he's really sure. Um, so anyway, Trump never showed up, and it always it, it always seemed to me that basically, you know, if the if it's if it's a he said she said, and if he's saying that you know her her accusations are or his lawyer is saying on his behalf, you know, her accusations are ridiculous and he didn't do this, that the jury would want to see him appear in person himself and say that this isn't a criminal proceeding where there's an expectation that, that you have a, a right to that. I mean, I realize you have a fifth amendment right not to speak, but there isn't the same expectation as in a criminal proceeding that the defendant might not speak in his own defense. Was it a mistake in retrospect? I mean, given this, the, the jury very quickly coming back and finding this judgment against him and, and the reasonably large award, was it a mistake for him not to show and, and not to offer his own defense? You know, it's easy to Monday morning quarterback and, and say that it was, but I might have made the same decision. I probably would have made the same decision because he's completely uncontrolled. And and you can see that by the fact that he made that statement that the judge brought up and poor uh, Joe Tacopino had to say, no, no, that's, that's just my client. I'm so sorry. Welcome to my life, more or less. Trump could have made it worse. He could have wound up with 10 million, 15 million, 20 million instead of 5 million. He's someone who is prone, you know, uh, even when he's being deposed in a case accusing him of having raped somebody, to say things like, well, yeah, as to that, uh, they let you do it when you're a star. It's true, fortunately or unfortunately, for the last million years. Weird stuff like that. He's the sort of person who says, you know, I didn't rape her because she's not my type. Um, he's not able to communicate in a disciplined manner. And there's really no prospect that he would be able to with however much preparation they could do before they put him on the stand. He's probably vulnerable to on cross being absolutely blown up and sent into a rage. And so whenever you make a decision and you say, well, this is a bad decision not to have him testify, the question is compared to what? So right. it's a worse decision to have him testify. Trump has, has been saying that he is going to appeal this decision. I'm wondering what you think of the likelihood that an appeal could do anything in particular about the amount of the damages. Because my, my sense watching these things is that sometimes, am I right that it's more common to get a damage award adjusted on appeal than it is to get the verdict changed? It's more common to get a punitive damage award adjusted on appeal than substantive damages. Here, when you're talking about the types of things Trump did and how outrageous they are, I would be surprised of a court of appeal downward adjusted the uh, compensatory damages and the punitive damages are very modest 
in comparison to those. Only 300,000 of the 5 million is punitive. Correct. So I think if Trump has plausible avenues for appeal, it's more likely to be letting in the other bad acts evidence, the other woman he harassed, his comments on the Access Hollywood tape. But even that, the the standard review is going to be unfavorable to, to Trump. You're going to have to show that the trial judge abused his discretion, which is a tough standard. He'll, he'll probably also take a shot at the um, theory that it's a violation for New York to create a statute that revives the statute of limitations on ones that have passed. Uh, But uh, I don't think that's likely to be fruitful either, given where the law is now. Yeah. And when you say it was the right moment to bring this case, I mean, there was literally a change in the law that made it possible to bring this case. Absolutely. So there was the change in the law that allowed people in New York to bring sexual assault claims that had that had lapsed uh, for a narrow window of time. But I was talking more about the cultural moment. So I, I don't think this case is winnable in 2013 or 2003 or certainly not earlier. I think the public sense of uh, sexual assault and when claims are credible and when they aren't has fundamentally changed uh, over the last 10 years uh, in a good way. And so this is something that it was the right cultural moment to win this claim. If there's been a, a damage award in a case like this and it's going to be appealed, does the defendant get to wait until the appeals are exhausted in order to put up all of that money? No. Generally, although it, it varies jurisdiction to jurisdiction, just appealing a, a money judgment does not automatically stay the ability to execute on it. So you could appeal, but they could then still go after your stuff and attempt to enforce the judgment. You have to post a bond, a surety bond, in order to avoid having uh, that done. So either he has to put up, you know, $5 million cash to the court, or he has to pay some surety company someplace that money and pay a premium on top of it. But so then does the court hold on to that money until the appeals are exhausted, or does E. Jean Carroll get this money pretty promptly? The court holds on to it until the appeals uh, are exhausted. And so how long do you think that might be? Well, uh, this is in federal court. I would say at least 16 months, maybe more like two years before you get a result from the court of appeals. It's not the type of thing uh, that I think would plausibly go to the Supreme Court. Uh, although Justice Alito may yet surprise me. Uh, so um, I, I would say that you get it in that time frame. So probably within a couple of years. Yes. Let's talk about George Santos. George Santos has been indicted. Uh, you know, people like to joke that our, you know, our taping for this show causes news to materialize. But we were, I mean, we were already anticipating that uh, because this case, the, the Carroll case went to the jury on Tuesday, we thought we might get a verdict on Tuesday. So we already planned to tape on Wednesday this week. And so we got this news on on Tuesday. Uh, CNN broke the news that George Santos had been criminally indicted in the Eastern District of New York. Uh, and that timing actually lined up quite well for us. We're taping on Wednesday morning and we have in our possession George Santos's 13 count indictment. And uh, people were sort of wondering because George Santos did so many wonderful things. There were many different possibilities about exactly what he got indicted for. I don't know that people had unemployment insurance fraud no. on the list of what was going to be in this indictment. 
And I'll be honest, Josh, this was stressing me out because uh, we didn't have the <laughs> indictment. And I felt more than any other indictment we've talked about, it was difficult to speculate what might be in it. I mean, <laughs> did he use the federally protected Woodsy Al character to sell arms to Syria? Uh, did he attempt to extort protected manatees? I, I don't know. It could be literally <laughs> anything. Uh, but, but as it turned out, this is a sordid little uh, indictment that accuses uh, Santos of various types of wire fraud, money laundering, and lying to Congress. There are several schemes in here, and it's not usual to see these schemes combined in the same person, let alone the same indictment. Scheme one is that he and his Confederates uh, defraud donors, telling them that if they donate to a company, that the company is is what's called a um, social welfare organization. A 501c4 organization under the tax code. Right. Uh, that's tax exempt and that it will then promote his candidacy. And so they should give money to it. In fact, the indictment says uh, that was used to pay his debts, pay for what it uh, sneeringly refers to as designer clothing uh, and <laughs> and run other things that are just to, to pay for his life. Josh, we were talking about this, and, and friend of the show and friend Mitch Epner called me to point this out as well, that the funny thing about this fraud is that even if it were true that this were a C4, uh, this company, and not just something that put money in his pocket, it still couldn't do the things they were saying right. it would do. <laughs> and it would have been illegal for him to do that, to raise this money for what is supposed to be an, an, an independent committee that uh, he can't just you know go and say, you know write me a large check to this committee. But you especially can't do that when the thing is, in fact, a for-profit corporation that is just paying your bills. Right. So that's scheme one. Scheme two is that during COVID, he got federally funded, federally backed unemployment insurance from New York while lying about his income by concealing stuff, including that illicit uh, income he was getting from donors that he had defrauded. So I, I think we should be fair to George Santos here, which is that, you know, this was illegal because he was employed. So I think we should congratulate George Santos for the fact that he did have labor income during this period. He was drawing a salary from some business. Yeah. And that's that's why he was not allowed to take unemployment insurance. So congratulations, George Santos, on having what was apparently a job. Well, right. I mean, you know, olds like me, Gen X and boomers love to rail about how millennials just didn't want to work. And that was the problem <laughs> with the economy. George Santos wanted to work. I mean, he wanted to get unemployment insurance as well. But the point is he was out there hustling. So yeah. uh, accounts uh, of that, there are accounts of money laundering based on scheme one. Now, let me just say this represents pissed off prosecutors. Um, right. Money laundering is a hammer. The sentencing guidelines on it are rough. It has all sorts of other dramatic long-term effects if you're convicted for it. Um, but remember that money laundering under federal law is basically there was a pile of money that came from something illegal. And when you realize that, you didn't sprint away from it as fast as you could. You did absolutely <laughs> anything else with the money. So they charge him with, you know, piddly transactions with the money that he shouldn't have gotten and hit him with money laundering. So it's, it's basically, it's wire fraud because he induces this person to write a check or send a wire into this business account. And then it's money laundering because he takes the money out of the account and does something with it. Exactly. Once it's illegally derived from one of the crimes specified, which is most of them, Anything you do with the money other than leave it there in a pile uh, is money laundering. So they hit him with money laundering. Finally, they hit him with lying to Congress. 
uh, which in this instance is a federal crime rather than a qualification. And uh, in the election cycle reports uh, he had to do twice in 2020 and 2022, they say that he lied about his assets and income once by leaving money out uh, that he had gotten illegally, including the unemployment insurance and the illegal donations, and once uh, by dramatically overstating uh, the income he was getting from his company for some reason that's not clear to me, I guess, to make him look uh, rich and successful. Well, I mean, the other reason that he might have overstated that is that his campaign forms say that he donated $700,000 of his own money to his campaign. And one of the big questions has been, where the hell did that money come from? Even Matt Gates asked him that question when he appeared on Matt Gates's podcast. And he's never given a satisfactory answer to that question. But that disclosure form was sort of an attempt at answering the question, which is, I own this fabulously successful business, and I drew all of these profits out of it. And so they're saying that's not true. This indictment doesn't address something that I think some people thought might be addressed in, in the indictment, which is basically, what was the source of all of that money? Because the, the money that he was defrauding the donors into giving him that's described in this indictment is not enough to make up for that $700,000 amount. Um, but so there is that that big question of, you know, did he really give $700,000 to his campaign? And if so, where the hell did it come from? Well, Josh, I think that raises a crucial question. And that is, wait a minute, Matt Gates has a podcast? You know, they'll, they'll let anyone have a podcast now. I assume it's less than 18 minutes long. <sighs> <laughs> Oh, if you could all see uh, expression on Sarah's face right now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> all right. Um, okay. So, um, so I, actually, I, I have a question about the stuff that wasn't indicted in here, which yeah. is, is this the sort of case where we're likely to see superseding indictments where they're going to keep coming up with new crimes that George Santos did and adding them to the indictment? Uh, depending on what his stance is. If he negotiates some sort of disposition fairly promptly and saves them the work, then No. Uh, if he fights it and annoys them, then yes. Uh, Santos, in terms of federal criminal law, is what is known as a target-rich environment. Uh, so you, you may be seeing all sorts of additional things about the other stuff he did, you know, alleged fraud in connection with uh, homeless dogs and, uh, you know, all sorts of weird stuff like that. They just may just start uh, bouncing his rubble. And so he is still a member of Congress, and periodically people in Congress talk about the idea that he should resign. And there was another round of calls for him to resign when people learned that he was indicted. Uh, most of the New York Republican delegation has called for that, no, although not Elise Stefanik. So uh, it's good to know that uh, Elise will, will stay in your corner longer than anyone else. But so I assume if you were his lawyer, you would encourage him not to resign right now, right? Right, because resigning from Congress is a crucial bargaining chip uh, in the resolution of the criminal charges. Uh, the feds love to say that as part of this agreement, this person's resigning makes them look like they've really accomplished something. So if you just immediately resign, you're basically throwing away a handful of chips that you have to bargain with. But so in terms of the, the usefulness of those chips, it's very unlikely that George Santos will be reelected to Congress. Um, he is officially he's running for reelection. I do not believe that he will win renomination uh, as the Republican candidate for New York's third district. And so I assume this prosecution is likely to take longer than he has remaining in his time in Congress. I mean, he's, he, he will continue to be a member of Congress for another. Uh, what is it? It's uh, a year and uh, I guess like 20 months. 
It all depends on how he defends it, Josh. He could demand his speedy trial rights and he could go to trial in three months or he could drag it out uh, with the mutual assent of the government. It could, you could see it going either way, but it would not be remarkable to go to trial in that period of time, though. Should George Santos take the stand in defense of himself? Well, are you asking from an entertainment perspective, Josh, or from a criminal defense one? No, as, as hosts of a legal podcast, we are definitely in favor of George Santos taking the stand. And we're also in favor of cameras in the courtroom uh, in the trial. But uh, what would be the right way to defend this case? Well, actually, you know, there are sort of some interesting defenses. And uh, Mitch Epner and I were sort of uh, trying some of these out. What if you said that the fundamental fraud... Uh, was not material because even if what he was saying was true, that still wouldn't allow the donations. Okay, I'm workshopping that. It needs a little work, but basically, so if you tell someone something that's false, but even if it were true, it wouldn't make a difference. Is that still fraud? The answer is yes, but I, I think we can massage it more till we can get it someplace. Also, <laughs> yeah, this is an uphill battle. And the problem is he, he's just someone who is fundamentally unable to make good choices. So, you know, just as Trump got where he is because of his character, uh, not just like about sexually assaulting people, but about then how he talks about it afterwards and how he acts during trial. So too does George Santos get where he is by being a nut and acting this way. I mean, as, as late as yesterday, he was still trash talking on social media and uh, pointing you know, out that the Democrat who's running against him in 2024 has a weak chin. Lots of really important uh, commentary there from George Santos. Yes, exactly. So, um, yeah, I, I I think anything could happen simply because he is kind of a nut. Uh, he, he's one of these public figures like Trump or like, you know, Roger Stone or one of these weirdos who will, you know, maybe decide everything's going to shit. Might as well make a spectacle of myself and enjoy the airtime. But I mean, I, I assume the right thing for him to do here is to find the most favorable way possible to plead this out. Oh, yeah. But there will have to be jail time as part of that plea, I assume. Oh, yeah. I don't know how much uh, to calculate that. I'd need to know the total amount of monies involved. Uh, but the one thing that's for certain is that if he does an early plea, he can substantially limit his exposure. He might be able to get rid of the money laundering charges, which would make a big difference in the sentencing guideline calculations. And uh, he could stop them from adding on new theories uh, and, and bouncing his rubble. So uh, that's what any sensible person would do. But again, we're talking about a world that the people we talk about on this show who exist both in the legal and the publicity realms. And sometimes they just can't resist doing the publicity things, even when it's really bad for them in the legal realm. Finally, let's talk about the protective order that has been issued in the New York criminal case against Donald Trump. This is the falsification of business records case. And so there's this order basically saying there's going to be a bunch of material produced uh, in discovery that the defense will get to look at about the, the charges against Donald Trump. And they are not allowed to disclose them in certain ways. And, and people in the press are referring to this as a gag order. Right. And it's not. This is a not- a typical protective order governing how discovery materials produced by the government can be used. It's common to see them in state and federal court. 
uh, limiting the ability of the defense to like publish or release to the media or do anything else with the materials turned over by the government. Uh, Trump's team is very much turning it into something that is extremely unusual. He's being singled out and it's a gag order. That's not quite right. He's not being singled out. You would expect to see something like this in many cases, including very average ones. What makes this order maybe a little unusual is that it specifically calls out Truth Social, which is not otherwise a particularly notable social media platform. But it says, Trump, you can't talk about this information or release these documents on any social media, including Truth Social. And that's kind of a, a call out. The government put on a case in their motion for a protective order talking about all the times that Trump has attacked witnesses and prosecutors and people, judges associated with his cases. And that is a pretty strong case for having a protective order, which, which are often done to protect witnesses or protect other people. Josh, a more interesting question, I think, is not so much is this unusual, because it's not. Uh, is a departure? It's not. Is the normal way things are done constitutional? So the law on this is not great for Trump. There's kind of a mess of First Amendment law about protective orders and whether it's legitimate in civil or criminal cases to limit people from talking publicly about what is turned over through the discovery process. And to my taste, the case law about it is a little bit hand-wavy. It's a little bit, eh, this is different, never mind. First Amendment cases, as we often talk about in, in this millennium, uh, are pretty rigorous, and they pretty rigorously ask, okay, if you're limiting this speech, where is the First Amendment exception? Where is it in the case law exactly? How exactly does it apply? The case law on this, on protective orders, is not very rigorous. It just sort of assumes, without really explaining, that this is permissible and that um, you can issue a protective order for, quote, good cause, unquote, which really isn't a First Amendment standard. So I could see this um, eventually coming around to a place where courts limit the ability of trial courts to issue these types of orders at least makes them more specific or more fact-based. But Trump is a terrible test case because he probably presents one of the better cases of uh, the need for a protective order that you're likely to get in any case because of his demonstrated pattern of using information to attack people. So is this the same issue as what we saw in the Fox Dominion lawsuit where you had redactions of certain evidence that had been produced? You had text messages among Fox News employees that were disclosed to Dominion, but they were blacked out and not disclosed to the public because of a protective order about things being of a personal nature or exposing things about business processes or that sort of thing. Is it the same kind of analysis where, you, where you're saying to Dominion, you may have this, but you may not show it to the public? Yes, it's similar. So in civil cases, it tends to be the party that's producing evidence in discovery that decides what shouldn't be shown to the public. And it's called designation. You designate this as confidential or highly confidential. And then if the other side disagrees, they can take it up with the judge. And that's what happened in the Dominion case, uh, that Dominion disagreed with Fox about some stuff. And so it came out and became public. In criminal cases, it's more often sort of a blanket. Everything that the prosecution turns over can't be released. And I have to say, uh, I see Trump's point and his attorney's point about how this seems to be fundamentally unfair 
and a potential violation of the First Amendment, given how extensive it is. Because hypothetically, Trump can't go on True Social and say, I've learned by looking at discovery that one of the key witnesses against me has a criminal conviction I wasn't aware of. So even if he doesn't name it or name the conviction, he wouldn't be able to say that to defend himself. And that, that strikes me as extremely dubious. You know, a much narrower order that says that you can't reveal the addresses and contact information of witnesses or something like that, I think is much more defensible. One this broad, I think only survives because of the law in the area is such a mess. As I think about it, there are other circumstances in which the government may disclose information to you that you are not allowed to then disclose publicly. If you have a security clearance, the government might provide documents to you that you're not allowed to show to people. Uh, the government provides data sets to researchers with rules about what you may not disclose publicly. Is this not like that, where it's the sort of the government bringing you inside the tent, handing you the document and saying, well, this is for your eyes only, but you're not allowed to share it? Usually in those circumstances, Josh, the interaction with the government is voluntary. So you are deciding to be a contractor for the government or work for the CIA or whatever it is, and voluntarily taking on an obligation the government can then enforce. The argument would be here, you're being charged with a crime. You have a constitutional and statutory right to get discovery. And then the government is saying, we're going to put restrictions on it, on to how you can disclose it or what you can say about it. So to me, the analogy is not perfect and it's problematical, at least as broad as this protective order is, which is basically you can't share any of the information derived. I mean, theoretically, you couldn't even say, you know, there's a witness against me and they've said six inconsistent different things at different times. That would be a technical violation of the protective order because you're talking about the information you're getting in discovery. And I, I see that as, as problematical. You can bring the information out by introducing it in court, right? Yes, you can. But in criminal cases, there's not a lot of opportunity to do that early in the case. Trump's argument is, hey, I'm running for president here. I'm not able to defend myself in the public arena. And it's fundamentally unfair. You'll see a lot that you remember we went through this with the gag order issue, like with Roger Stone and other people being gagged for talking about the judge and the case and that type of thing. Um, judges are human. And uh, one of the human qualities is to say, well, stuff about me is different. And so <laughs> courts, I think, are more likely to find First Amendment exceptions or nuances when it comes to controlling things going on in front of them than they are uh, other branches of government doing stuff. I think a court is more likely to put up with a protective order than it is to put up with, uh, you know, the executive branch trying to restrict speech to a similar extent. What happens if Trump violates the protective order? Uh, it could be contempt of court. Uh, it could be sanctions. It could even be some sort of revocation of, you know, his, his release on his, I think he's released on his own recognizance if memory serves, but whatever yes. his bail status is, that could be changed. So he could even, in theory, lose uh, the opportunity to get some discovery if he's consistently violating the terms on which it's being uh, produced. Hmm. And then there's another matter in this case, which is that Trump has filed a motion to remove the prosecution into federal court. How does that work? Can you have a state prosecution in federal court? Well, there are narrow provisions from it. Uh, removal just means 
taking a case from state court and putting it into federal court. Normally, we see it in civil cases. Uh, right. and, we, and we've seen that, in fact, with Trump before. But there's a statute, uh, a federal statute, that allows uh, a defendant in a civil or criminal action who's being sued or prosecuted based on their acts on behalf of the United States, their official duties as an officer or employee of the United States, to take that prosecution to federal court. And like most of these things, this is based on somewhat archaic worries that the states will interfere with the operation of the federal government and harass federal officials. So he is citing that. And his theory, which is somewhat contrived to my taste, is that he was... In order to be president, it was necessary to allay fears that he had conflicts of interest because of his ongoing you know, business empire, and that uh, therefore he hired Michael Cohen uh, in order to take care of these issues, and that was an act in connection with his office as president, and therefore he's being prosecuted for acts in his role as president. He also says that uh, you might remember that the the indictment in New York, one of Bragg's theories is that he was making false entries in business records to promote election fraud. And they say, well, federal law on elections preempts that, and therefore there's a federal defense. In order to plausibly do this, Josh, to remove a case on this theory, you have to show two things. You have to show that you were acting uh, in capacity as a federal official, and you're being prosecuted for that, and that you have a federal defense. Mm -hmm. So there's a Supreme Court case from uh, the 80s, I believe, where postal workers who were getting traffic tickets, basically, or getting moving violations, were trying to remove that to federal court. And the Supreme Court says, no, 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 no. You might be being prosecuted based on things you were doing on the job, but there's no federal defense. So Trump has to come up with both of those. The federal judge who received this acted pretty promptly. Trump just filed it on May 4th. And within a couple of days, the federal judge had issued an order uh, saying that the judge had reviewed the papers. The judge wanted any motion um, from New York to send the case back to New York filed within a certain number of days that he was pre-setting a hearing for that motion. And that in the meantime, the, the New York prosecution could go on. That, to me, reads as a fairly strong level of skepticism about Trump's removal. Yeah, th there are several arguments they have about why it should be removed. The, the last one at the end is sort of about that basically, well, he's being prosecuted for political reasons and that therefore it ought to be removed to federal court. And they're, they're, they hang their hat on a dissent by Justice Brennan in that 80s case that you talk about with the postal workers who suggested that, you know, maybe uh, if local prosecutors were bringing cases against federal officials to harass them, then that, that would be a reason that you should move it to federal court. But that was a dissent in that case. Well, sure. There's this, this theory of a doctrine called protective jurisdiction, where even if the prosecution doesn't meet the other elements of this type of removal, if it's being done to harass unjustly federal officials, then maybe uh, it could be brought to federal court on that basis. And yes, in that case, what Brennan said is, oh, we don't really have to reach that, but it, I could see maybe it could happen, which is a pretty thin uh, read on which to hang uh, yeah. a removal. The Supreme Court's never endorsed protective jurisdiction. It's dubious whether or not uh, it would happen because it would, I think it would involve federal courts into 
really difficult inquiries into which state prosecutions are legitimate and which aren't. But at any rate, uh, that is not a very strong argument. Uh, I think we can leave it there for this week. Ken, thank you so much for speaking with me. Well, thank you, Josh. And I'm glad that we waited for the indictment. And now we know that absolutely nothing can happen to overtake this episode. Serious Trouble is created and produced by Very Serious Media. That's me and Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Our theme music is by Joshua Mosier. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with more soon. See you next time.